Oh, it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ballgame. Take me out to the ballgame, take me out with the crowd, buy me some peanuts and cracker jacks, I don't care if I ever get back, let me You're out at the old ball game. Welcome to Let's Get To, the baseball podcast from the fans' perspective. Now here's your host, James Christopher. And welcome to Let's Get To. I am your host, James Christopher, and we have a packed show again. We've got a baseball filmmaker here. We've got a baseball traveler. Scott is here with the Big League Chew. Andy's here with Go Go Astros. And our good buddy Jess Canaster of the Lancaster Jethawks is here to help close the show out. And I want to talk about the Jethawks. Now, the Jethawks are one of those 42 teams that ended up on the contraction list. And, you know, we've talked about the contraction nonstop on this show. We will continue to talk about it, about how abhorrent it is that they are going to try to push this through where everybody's looking the other way during COVID-19. But I want to talk about the Jethawks because they are they are one of those teams on the list and they're not giving up the fight. And so they've got a couple initiatives going. They've got, first of all, a really cool T-shirt they're selling for 15 bucks that just shows, shows that you're supporting MILB and the Lancaster Jethawks. And Representative Kevin McCarthy, who we're trying to get on the show, wants you to flood his office with emails about why you support the Jethawks, why you support MILB. And all of this stuff can be found on the Jethawks website, where we will be linking to this in the description of the show. It's as easy as clicking a button to email Congressman McCarthy. So I hope all of you get involved. Get involved using the hashtag SaveOurJethawks. It's important. Throughout this whole COVID-19 thing, Minor League Baseball, these small businesses have been working to serve your communities, regardless of where you are. And for some of them, under the cloud that they might, with the snap of a finger, not have a team anymore. At some point, we have to draw a line about what matters to our culture, what matters to us, and we're going to have to fight for it. And I think baseball is about as American as it gets. And if there's going to be a line in the sand or a moment where we say enough is enough, where we're making decisions that are purely economic in nature, this seems like the best place to start that fight. So hopefully you'll get involved. And now, the Big League Chew, and I on the Majors, brought to you by Zoomer Sports. And we've got to chew on another plan from Major League Baseball. And Scott, you and I have not really talked about all of these plans because some of them have come out so quickly and were almost immediately kind of dismissed. But you messaged me this one saying, this one sounds like it might stick. So uh, first of all, how are you? Are you healthy? Yeah. Yeah, still sane. Um, haven't killed a teenager or, yet. She's actually doing, doing uh, I'm doing or quite a puggle. well, actually. I'm, you know, I'm stuck at the house. Or a puggle. <laughs> yeah. Or a puggle. The puggle. Yeah, we, we got over that non-technical hurdle. 
and the teenager was very th- was very uh, helpful in getting the whiny folks. If you've ever done a recording with a Puggles bug eyes staring at you as he's crying and whining, you'll understand that he had to be removed from the room before this this segment could be recorded. There's just no way to handle it. So let's go ahead and start and talk a little bit about. Maybe lay out for us the logistics of what this plan looks like, and then we'll talk about why you think it'll be different, and then we'll talk a little bit about strengths and weaknesses versus other plans. Okay. Yeah, so plans in the past has really felt like they were spitballing stuff. This one uh, that that I believe it came out yesterday, um, really, or yesterday as we were recording this, uh, seems to have some merit. First of all, they're talking about starting the season the season in late June, close to July 4th, which that seems more realistic, uh, starting no later than July 2nd. So baseball comes back to America on Independence Day. You know, think about that. ESPN will have a field day with that. Um, so what they're talking about also is playing at home stadiums, but without fans. That feels realistic to me also. There are there are people that work uh, in, in these places that that need jobs, frankly, and there are cities that want their their team to rep- to be there representing them, not just spend a year in Arizona, and and it's where it's also not 140 degrees while they're playing. Um, talking about a reduced schedule of around 100 games, that seems plausible as well. Um, but then the one big curveball to me is the possible realignment structure. Uh, of what they're talking about, and that's 10 teams per division, with there being an East, West, and Central division set up, uh, which the DH would be in place across the board for this year. Um, and I, I really feel like as they go into the collective bargains, bargaining season, I hate to, to be a predictor here, but this could be something that they hang on to for a longer term also, I would say. So what are your thoughts? So uh, one of the things that I'm that I that I am confused about, and I didn't see when I read about it, and I, and I don't want to get. Did you see where they? So they talked about an expanded playoff model for this particular year. Uh, did you see what that looks like? I haven't seen anything other. So what I would assume is every division winner and then a wild card from each division. But I'm not sure. Have you seen any specifics on that? I've I've not seen anything specific yet. Um, about I, I've I've heard the same thing that, that you've heard about a potential uh, expansion of the playoffs just for this year. Uh, yeah, I think you can expand the number of teams while reducing the length of the series up front. You know, rather than having a one-game wild card, maybe you have um, two best of three series. To, to start it off, um, you know, only playing 100 games and having 10 teams within your division, I could see them using taking four teams from each division and you have to, you know, or, or, or some number somehow. And ultimately, you got to get to four teams, right? Ultimately, you have to get to the final four teams. But how weird would that be also if out of this you had a, um, a Dodgers Cardinals World Series or a um, Yankees Indians or Yankees Twins World Series or something like that or or, or you know because they're never going to let Houston actually make the, the playoffs this year right they're they're completely <laughs> no, well, this um, is one area where that where where yeah. that, you know I mean on, 
So you asked me what I thought about it. So there are there are there is an Astros angle to it, and I'll lead off with that. And then there's a logistic reason why. Of the three of the four plans I've seen, so I've seen the all Arizona, I've seen the Arizona Florida bubble, I've seen the Arizona Florida Texas bubble, and I've seen this. So from this Astros perspective, I don't like it because what it does is now forty percent roughly. Or 78% of road games, but 40% of games overall will now start for a Houston audience after nine o'clock. Um, it seems like a tremendous. Potentially. Well, I mean, okay, you might have the occasional day game, but the fact of the matter is you're going to probably want to stick to a seven o'clock start in LA if you're playing the Dodgers because you want people to be home to watch it. Um, and that's what I'm interested in seeing because how many people are really going to be staying at home more anyway? And rather than having to fight L.A. traffic, for example, or Bay Area traffic to get to the ballpark, you no longer have to do that. So could you start the game at 6 o'clock, um, 6 o'clock their time, which would be an 8 o'clock start for you, you know, some type of compromise like that? Because you're right, in, in this alignment, the two teams not on the West Coast that would be playing in the West Division are Texas and Houston. And from a logistical standpoint, if you're going to go 10, 10, and 10, Two teams are going to have to take it on the chin from somewhere, right? Um, but I do think it's unfair to force you to – when there's no fans in attendance, first of all. Nobody has to, like, fight traffic to get to the ball game. Um, it, it would be unfair for you to have to be up at 9 o'clock. For well, and, it, and what, it, what it really is, it becomes an extension of the things people hated about – um, the force moved to the American League because when the when Houston was rocking in the Central, every single game, every division game and every home game, of course, but every division game was Central Time Zone. And look, obviously, people would point to the fact, well, but before you were in the NL Central, you're in the NL West, and I'm like, well, yes, but that's when there were two divisions, and it didn't make any sense to be in the NL East. Like the NL West is what made sense when you're talking about two divisions. Um, so, but that that's a that's a personal gripe. Here is my big issue, and this is something I'd like your take on. So, for me, um, everything everything that breaks down to about this is about safety, and it is about um, safety for fa- safety for for players and safety for p- personnel that work a game. Doesn't it make more sense to take the same division alignment or something very similar and adapt the Arizona, Florida? Texas bubble, where now you're exposing fewer game day stadium operating crews to the coronavirus. You're drastically reducing reducing distance and travel, and therefore people you might expose along the way. If you're not playing in front of fans, does it really matter where you play the game? Um, so to me, the counterpoint I would make to that is that the number one employees – quote unquote, of Major League Baseball are the players. They're the they're the ones that, that should matter most, especially if you're coming into a collective bargaining agreement here. Doing this where um, they can have some semblance of normal home life, their families, um, would go a long way. In, in my opinion, it goes a long way. Yes. Um, and, and also with the game day staff that has to work these games, at least this way they'd have a job. There would still be TV revenue coming in. So to, to me, they are faced with the exact same, um, with the exact same, same, um, 
decision that everyone else has to make. And that is that, ha- that owns a business. Do I open my business and expose my employees or do I keep my business closed? In which case I might lose it, you know, for a longer period of we, time or were these people. Lose well, you certainly job. can't expose yourself so, to your employees though. No, no, unless you own a strip club. Right. And that's the only way okay. you're, and you work in your, uh, actually, so let me, let me, okay. So now I, I will completely see that your, your decision makes sense. Now let's, let's go through what I imagine the travel situation is like for a major league baseball player. Carlos Correa is not making sure he wakes up at midnight to check into Southwest to make sure that he's like a 15 to get on the plane. He is on a team charter, right? Does it matter if he is flying to relatively the same number of games to the Yankees and the Twins and then to the Angels in Oakland? Like why why even do this at all with – and why not just play the regular season without fans, using the same parks and the same road trips, basically trying to do do your best to pick up where you leave off – and at least maintaining some divisional and league integrity. Because, you know, as a fan who knows what it's like to think about world championships having asterisks, there are already uh, some people that are saying, do you even call it the World Series anymore? I mean, I think that's stupid. Yes, you do. But wh- why, if if these players are able to travel in bubbles, and they are, why then why do this at all? Why not just play out the schedule with the uh, with the regular home ballparks? So I think you're going to try to get as many games in in as little a time as possible, right? Um, and from a geographical perspective, it just simply takes less time for you know the, not everybody has seen what what they're talking about. So let's take the West as the example, where the ten teams are the Dodgers, the Angels, the Giants, and the A's. San Diego and Arizona are in there. The Rockies, the Rangers, the Mariners, and the Astros. So from a geographical perspective, other than Texas and Houston, are the outliers here. Uh, but again. Two teams are going to have to be the outliers if you go 10, 10, and 10. Um, you're reducing the length of time that you have to travel. Therefore, if the Angels are scheduled to be in a three-game series of the Yankees, they don't have to make that trip across the country now. They will have to go to Seattle, right? That, Seattle or, or, or Dallas or Houston, maybe that will be the longest trek they have to make. So I can have games potentially seven days a week. You know, pretty close to it. I can make them play every day because I'm also going to expand the rosters. Now, what that will look like, whether it's 28 or 32 or or whatever, we'll see what that number finalizes at. But I should be able to still throw guys every fifth day, uh, have more day-to-day players, more positional players that that can that that we can you know keep them playing. Now, unfortunately, I've still got um, I've still got Mother Nature to deal with. In many of these cases, especially for the central and the eastern division where the, the weather patterns can be a little crazier and there's fewer dome stadiums. Um, so in that case, there, there may be more double headers or seven inning double headers may get thrown in there as well in, in these cases, um, which is not unheard of. They do it in the lower levels of, of minor leagues anyway. But I think it reduces the amount of time that people have to travel. Um, just simply from one place to the other, and they're more rested and ready to play. You know, if you finish a game at 10 o'clock on a Wednesday and you've got first pitch at 5 o'clock on a Thursday, simple logistics tell you it's going to be a lot quicker for me to fly from L.A. to Oakland 
Okay. Than it would be for me to fly from LA to. Canada. How many games do you think that they're going to be able to get in? Because I'm going somewhere with this. 110 maximum. 110 maximum. You're scheduled to play 76 division games. Why not just play 110 division games? Therefore, it accomplishes the same thing you're talking about as far as ease of travel, where you're still not essentially bastardizing the the I mean like like here's for and I know that this is stupid but baseball is all about numbers it's all about stupid numbers you know the best line in in Mr. Baseball is you forget that I led your team in ninth inning doubles in the month of August all right that that stuff matters to people the Astros are going to be going for a fourth division championship the Dodgers are going for an eighth in a row division championship if they're in this alignment one of those things isn't happening. Does that matter? Do we throw this year out? It seems like to me, I think it would be better served, which you could do if you did what I'm suggesting, which is just to essentially play your division for 100, 110 games. You can play five game home stands. I'm sorry, five game series instead of three or four and therefore reduce your travel footprint. I think distance of travel, when you're talking about planes, doesn't matter as much. It's not like the Texas League where I'm going to be taking a bus from El, from um, Midland to Corpus. So I don't know. I, it seems to me you could the, – the easiest way to do it is to just play an interdivisional schedule and not reinvent the wheel. So three things come to mind, um, the, the first of which is when 76 out of 162 games are played within the division, you're, you're playing just on, you know, 47, 48% of your games against your division. That's more palatable to the fans. If a fan is only going to be able to turn on the TV, if I'm, if I'm a St. Louis fan and the only four teams I'm ever going to watch my team play are the Reds, the Brewers, the Cubs, and, uh, yeah, whoever else. I think it's the Pirates. Um, I'm joking. Of course, <laughs> Sorry, Ken. That are, and, <laughs> Uh, it was it was it was completely a joke. Kent, I love I love Kent DeCalvey's perfect, beautiful person, great hats. I love him with the three stripe piping. Um, anyway, uh, if those are the only four teams I'm watching playing, from a fan's perspective, that seems pretty god awful. In all honesty, if I've got to watch us play the Cubs. 26 times this year, and we're not going to see anybody else. But if you're a fan uh, that's so quote desperate for baseball. I, from what I understand, nobody would care. People are people are waking up to watch games in Taiwan. True, but I, for me, I think this divisional thing is is a better idea. So that's but that's my that's my first point. I think from a fan's perspective, it, you you still get more parity. I, I would rather see the Cardinals play nine other teams throughout the course of the year than four. That's the first thing. Uh, the second point um, w- would be the fact of I th- this is I think this is a this is pure speculation on my part, but I think it's a bigger thing to get the DH across the board. And the third thing is that, look, certain divisions in baseball are just purely weaker than the others. The AL Central, I'm not trying to pick on them, but the, the Royals, the Tigers are, are not making the postseason. The White Sox probably aren't, right? The Twins and the Indians and the Indians seem to be headed in the wrong direction. A good hitter for the Twins in that setup, if he's seeing half of his games, half of his games against Tiger and Royals pitching, it is not outside uh, of the norm that somebody would hit 400 over the course of 100, 110 games. 
And I then you start talking about asterisks in the record books. Um, conversely, you would have guys that are incredible hitters that are going to have to face the Dodgers for a quarter of their games. Uh, their numbers are going to get lower. And and the NL Central are just good. Everybody's going to beat the hell out of each other. And then every quarter of the time, beat the hell out of Pittsburgh. Uh, sorry, Ken. Because just not good yet. Uh, sorry, Ken. Um, I don't know, but I'm I'm sorry anyway. I'm not trying to pick on them. They 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 do have the opportunity to get better though, uh, and they have great offense. And I love Josh Bell, great player. Um, so I I don't I don't like that because I do think it could impact record books long term. You know, I went a long way to get there, but I do think it could impact record books. There would be asterisks in the record books. Okay, yeah, uh, you know Verlander had a you know, a much lower ERA or, or whomever in the, with the twins has a 1.5 ERA this year when he normally would have had a, you know, two and a half or a three. Uh, I just, I'd, I don't like it for that reason. That's my, that, that's my least of the three, but that is still a reason. Lights, camera, play ball, inside baseball cinema. And so we're excited to welcome to Let's Get To Christopher Watkins. He's a screenwriter from Los Angeles, California. Chris, how's it going, man? It's going quite well. How are you doing? Doing good. Um, So full disclosure, um, you and I know each other from Twitter, and I think you and I uh, bonded over the fact that it got a little crazy for, for fans of a certain baseball team around January. Oh, it sure did. It sure did. And people were making us, fans of other teams were making us feel guilty for simply being fans of our team. We had no control of what they were doing, but they did a thing that not many people seem to like, including us. That's, I think, the biggest biggest part of it is I don't know that, like, I got real um, strong in my defense of them when I saw the reaction. I was disappointed, too. And then I thought, well, but they're not Hitler, so let's calm down. Exactly. Exactly. People are people are going overboard. It's like this. It's it, from other fan bases. They're making it sound like the Astros are the single reason that the that the MLB no longer has any shred of integrity. <laughs> and that's definitely not true at all. If you've been following baseball for you know really any length of time, if you know about steroids, if you know about I don't know the sign stealing things that have come far before the Astros. There's just so much. It's not just the Astros. Never has been. Well, you've been following baseball for a long time. So tell me a little bit about just how you got into the game in the first place. So um, a lot of people find it weird that I'm a Los Angeles-based Astros fan. So this goes way back to when I would go to Houston because most of my family is from Houston. And then uh, my mom's side is from Houston. My dad's side is from Dallas. But they met in the Bay Area and then settled down in Los Angeles. So – uh, during the summers, they would send me out to Houston and spend, so I could spend time with family out there. And inevitably, that is where I fell in love with the Astros while I was watching television with my grandmother. So watched the Astros out there, fell in love, came back here, played baseball all throughout my life. And uh, unfortunately, when I was younger, I was injured, um, not in any crazy accident, just a wear and tear injury on my shoulder. As a lot of you know, baseball players will will can tell you, you know, when you pitch so much without rest and don't you know rest your arm properly there's gonna be some rips and tears and things that you can't really come back from eventually and that's what happened to me so eventually I um got out of the whole baseball dream and I couldn't even watch my Astros for for what two or three years because it was just I was just so sad because I couldn't play anymore um but eventually I got back into it 
uh, this was around 2014, 2015. I was getting back into it back when they were starting to get good again. And I was still obsessed, even going into my other career, because uh, originally I wanted to play baseball, you know. Well, speaking of your other career, and that's what I think is super cool. So, you know, you and I had ended up on some stuff where we were kind of making some jokes. And then I looked and it's like, and you went to a small film school no one's ever heard of. Yeah, I don't think uh, that <laughs> you might have to Google it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. People who listen to this podcast are definitely going to have to Google it or maybe talk to a friend and maybe see if they know. But it's called um, the University of Southern California. Uh, School of Cinematic Arts. Yeah, um, little little place, little place. So how did you get into film? Like when 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 was that a thing for you where you're like, okay, I think this is what I want to do with my life now? So uh, growing up in L.A., I never considered it at all, not even once. Um, but when I was younger, I would always read books. I would always write stories. And I never considered the careers that could come of it because um, I, was, I, was, I was always playing video games. And video games were my thing. Like that's what I wanted to do. So I went to UC Riverside to do that. Um, another college over here. Um, and then I discovered that's not quite, it wasn't quite my path, but the girl I was dating at the time, she was the biggest film buff I've ever seen. She would watch film three or four times and I would kind of call her crazy. Like, how can you do that? Isn't that boring? <laughs> You're taking in that information, like get something new into your life. That's weird. And then she kind of, kind of changed me. And, and since I got out of computer science, uh, to do video games, I thought, you know, what else could I tell stories and people in different worlds? What other career would allow me to do that? And as I was dating her, it just all kind of materialized and came clear. It's like it was obvious. I've been writing stories since I was little. I've been in love with stories. I've been obsessed. Um, and and now and then now I have a way that's not programming to get those out there. And it's like it was such an easy switch. Boom. Switch to film. One of the things I wanted to ask, because you're you're a screenwriter by trade, although I know when you're in film school, you do all kinds of stuff and it's always good to kind of. But did you find it difficult or pretty easy to translate from, hey, I write short stories, which means I can be like the omniscient narrator. I can to going and saying, OK, now I'm writing a screenplay where I'm limited to simply what is seen or heard in, in, on a film script. It was I was very, very into academics, um, not because I was a nerd, but because I feared failure. So when I switched into a screenwriting class, I was just into it. it there was no real – I didn't really struggle with the format or the storytelling, but I had a really good teacher. And um, I got shout out – give a shout out to the teacher. Uh, that teacher was uh, – his name was Stuart Krieger. Uh, if you IMDb him, he's the writer of Land Before Time. Uh, he oh. was my, not, not too bad for your first screenwriting. <laughs> no. <right? laughs> so I just threw myself into it, soaked it up like a sponge, and I, I would I'd stay late. I would email him so many questions and just I would just soak it in. And so it was never really and he was really scathing with his uh, with his criticisms of my work. So, you know, taking it that way and not being afraid of criticism really makes you able to. Uh, convert to that format pretty easily. You know, that it's, 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 I love that you said that because, you know, I'm in a, you know, I, I went to film school at UT, not as good as USC, but we still beat you on the national championship in 05. So I'm going to go ahead and live with that and be okay with that. I got my Vince Young signed hat right you know, behind me. Quick aside, quick aside, when I was, uh, when NCAA football games used to be a thing, my top two teams I would always pick, it was either USC or UT. Just because of my, you know, Texas connection. I feel like you I and I are going to be best friends by the time this is over with. Um, but no, uh, you know, we're in that industry where people brag about being like uneducated in it. But you're exactly right. Like when you're in film school, you you are 
paying for the most honest feedback you're ever going to get because people are never going to be as real with you as when you're in a writing class and, and students are required to give feedback and things like that. I think it's a great thing you mentioned. Oh yeah, big time. There was it, it was kind of like a boot camp that USC puts you through. Um, it's like if you're not supremely focused on film nearly twenty four seven, you're probably going to have to drop out because it's 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 very accelerated. It's very, it's very. Oh, it's it's a go back about Stuart Krieger. I, I didn't even know at the time, but he was a uh, he's also a professor at USC. And also UC Riverside. I had no idea when I was a student uh, because USC was my dream school at the time, but they rejected me uh, out of high school. But I still had no idea. But that connection was made later. And I think it made it easier for me to get in uh, to that school. But, yeah, like it's it's they the criticisms they give you there are what kind of it sharpens you. It sharpens you so hard and it makes the industry when you first get into it not seem so foreign because the way they do it is very kind of industry centric. It's, it's very, they use the studio system even at the school. Yeah. I mean, and that's what I try to tell my film students too, like applying for film schools really should be based on the kind of film you want to make. And if you want to go into the business, you, you got to go to LA. I mean, you just have to do your best. Um, now, you know, I run for those of you that are listening to the, to the show that don't know, I'm, I run the Austin revolution film festival. We are one of the top, film festivals on film freeway. And we're going to play a film you wrote. Now, I'm going to read the synopsis and I want you to talk you a little bit about it. If you don't mind, um, the film's called hats. Uh, and it's the synopsis is as the allures and dangers of nine of 90 South central gangster lifestyle surround him. Keto Lewis, a, a witty young black baseball player strives to master a sport, leaving him with an important decision about which hat he will wear in life. So, First of all, the film is beautiful. Um, I love the fact that you and the team pulled it off on a student film budget because that's not easy to do, period, piece, all that stuff. Where did the film itself come from? So that came from uh, kind of my life story growing up in L.A., um, just growing up in L.A. in one part of town and then having to kind of drive to another part of town to go to school because your part of town is, you know, notoriously dangerous for gangs um so it's it's and it's kind of that story of culture shock in your own kind of society um having to be bussed out to an area that you don't really recognize that's that you didn't really grow up around um and the whole idea kind of conceptualized when i was actually wearing an astros hat i went to a gas station wearing an astros hat and um somebody who seemed to be very down on their luck. They came up to me. I, I don't know if they were homeless or, or an addict or both or, but they, they were very, they seemed strung out, but they came up to me and, um, they asked, they, they pointed to my hat and they said, are you from Hoover and Hoover out here? It's, it's a, it's, it's one of the gangs out here. And I was like, no, no, I'm just, I just like the Astros. And that's where the kind of the, the thought of, the symbolic nature of what a hat can mean. That's where it came to me. And then I thought back on it. I had a flashback to high school. Uh, you couldn't wear a uniform or like a football jersey or a hat unless you were on the specific sports team. So it's like a status symbol. It's a status symbol at the school. But in my area, just how that, that homeless person, just how he noticed, that's a gang symbol. It's also a gang symbol in my area. So a symbol from my area could get you killed here. But the same thing is highly touted and heavily coveted at the school and it's a symbol of pride but it could get you killed there and just that kind of juxtaposition of those status symbols made me think of that 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 being an intriguing story to tell 
And then I just compared it to how I grew up and various things I experienced uh, in playing baseball and in trying to grow up in this society out here. And the story just kind of, and not to say it wrote itself, but it was, it was, it was easy to conceptualize. No, I, I gotta be honest to be able to, the, the writing on it is so good to put all of that. And I know you have a feature version of the script, but to see that in a short film and not feel like I was missing anything is really a testament to the writing. Oh, that's that, that is the biggest compliment. Cause we actually cut so much, so much out. So that's, that's a testament to the editing as well. But um, yeah, there was, there was just so much that, that we wanted to even, even add to it, which is why there is a, a featured screenplay that I've written, but um, there's, there's just, there's so much more. But I'm so I'm happy that you you said that. I appreciate that big time. Yeah, we're looking forward to playing it. I think we're still having the festival in September. But yeah, we're looking forward to it. Um, now, one of the things I want to ask from a production perspective, like, you know, you picked baseball, and I and you know, having been a filmmaker, did you ever think at one point, why did we pick a little simpler sport to orchestrate than baseball? Like, just from like the production perspective. Well, it was so important that it was baseball because just. In terms of the racial dynamics that the story wanted to tell, um, there's there's nothing like baseball in terms of like American racial dynamics. There's nothing just just nothing like baseball with the whole integration of it. And then specifically when we were pitching the film to USC, uh, it was on Jackie Robinson Day. Oh, wow. On that day. So it almost felt like it was kind of meant to be. It's like we, we had to do it. And. And you'll see stuff like All American, where it's football. The story's been told in a football standpoint uh, a few times, but in terms of baseball, and also I think people right now are starved for baseball cinema. There's no. When's the last time you've seen a baseball film out there that's done you know really well, other than Forty Two? Like when's the last time you had a like a, a kind of a modern baseball film? Like I can't really think of one in the last maybe almost decade. So I feel like it would be huge. And be huge, especially for us that are sitting at home, starved starved for baseball. So the the feature, like, is the short going to help you get traction for that, or do you have any information on that yet? I hope so. It's it's almost like a um a proof of concept for the uh for the feature. I feel like um it it, it all just depends right now on um if I can get the screenplay and the short film into the right eyes and the right hands uh, to see it. Because I've been, I'm still keeping in touch with the producers of the short film, various members of USC faculty, and and um, but it's 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 tough. It's it's going to be tough whether you go to USC or not. It's it's tough in the film industry to gain those, uh, to network and gain those contacts that can actually get you there. You know. Yeah, I mean it's such a, but like I said, it's such a well well told, well paced story. Um, so we we said the outset, you and I are both Astros fans. You're living in LA. Um, you know how have you been treated? Since the whole thing happened, because I know that you're still repping, like not, no part of you has stopped that. So, like, have you gotten a lot of pushback from people in L.A. or do you, you know, are, are we overblowing how much everybody cares? So on social media, I've seen just the worst of human. <laughs> <laughs> but in L.A., in person, I work at I work at a major film studio here. Uh, I don't know if I should say the name, but I'm working at a major film studio and when I'm there, uh, I'm wearing my Astros hat. I don't, I don't care. I don't care that I'm in LA. Some people are like, oh, you're bold to wear that hat. You know, o- online, you'll get the worst of people. But in person, people will come up to me and be like, oh, yeah, you're bold to wear that hat. And then we'll have a great baseball conversation. We'll talk about the scandal. It'll all be very civil. We'll walk away. We'll shake hands as friends. Maybe we won't shake hands in this day and age because of <laughs> What? 
you know, three months ago we would shake hands. <laughs> yeah. But um, it's not. It, it generally leads to very nice conversations because they know at the end of the day people are pretty civil and they know that it's not a fan fault for what his team did. It's not. You know, people aren't people aren't crazy in real life like they are on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram even. Yeah, I think that's what's been funny is I'll find people that will interact even on Twitter. Like you said, it's the worst. I've seen – I think the low point – outside of my own grandchild getting mocked, and he's two, by the way, um, in person. I saw a, a woman who – a mom who had posted a, a, a picture of her kid in Altuve in a cancer ward. And somebody said something something to the effect of they maybe they wouldn't have cancer if they didn't root for cheaters. I was like, OK, maybe maybe we can agree that that's too far. As far as how and, we deal with it. And that's, yeah, absolutely insane. Wow. Like at the end of the day, people have to also just realize I had a, I had a talk with a, um, I think he was a, he was a Brewers fan with Minnesota. He was a Vikings and Brewers fan. Uh, this was also at the film studio where he was like, at the end of the day, people have to realize baseball, it's all fun and games. It is a game. It is a sport. It is our distraction. It is one of the best things, in my opinion. It's one of the best things in this human existence. We love it so much. And you have to realize that it's never that serious to come after somebody personally, to come after somebody's family, to come after somebody's health. It's never that serious. Like, keep it happy. Keep it light. Be positive. And it's it's insane the way people treat people. It is. I'm with you. So uh, two more questions. One, do you feel like we are going to see baseball this year? Mm. I hope so. Uh, I'm going to try to be an, uh, an optimist and say yes. Um, just with hopefully things open up in the next maybe two or three months even. Even if we have to have – I heard there was some proposed um, – type of NCAA like March Madness kind of schedule like they just do it like a tournament system that would be nice as long as we get something because these days honestly what I'm doing uh when I crave baseball I'm hopping on MLB the show and I'm playing my brains out I'm just (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to see what the season would be like in a baseball stem so that's that's the most sight we can get right now which Uh, is sad and did you ever get your rainbow jersey oh I did not I feel like I never Okay. I never got to a stage where I earned it. Like everything started to get locked down. And then yeah. I, like, oh, I need to, and now the money needs to get rerouted to the uh, quote unquote essentials. Yeah. Yeah. That whole thing. Well, and what are you working on next? Like when, when this gets cleared, what are you going to jump into? Um, it looks like I'm going to go back to the same job at the studio. Um, I work post-production uh, at Paramount. I guess I can I can say that. Well, yeah, post-production at Paramount. Um, and I'm just going to continue toiling away, being working in post-production and also writing as much as I can because I have so many concepts and ideas in my brain that are screaming to get out. So I'm going to use this quarantine time to do that as well. Well, we are rooting for you, Christopher. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. It was a very nice conversation. It's so refreshing to talk about baseball again. I was, and just to just to leave off uh, more. I was so excited for the storylines that were going to come with more Astros baseball. Like I was, I was excited to see how Jordan would do in his second yeah. year. I was so excited to see how Josh Reddick would fare against Kyle Tucker when you kind of pit him together against uh, each other with playing time and how George Springer would do on a contract year. There's just so much. Can we just not say Mm. George Springer in contract year? Because I'm I have an emotional attachment to that guy that's probably unhealthy. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do if he leaves. 
Uh, I, let's let's not talk about him leaving. Let's only think about him staying. No, but you're right. I think we are missing some great. I mean, look, even I even feel bad for Nationals fans who are not going to get to enjoy, you know, that because that 2018 season was awesome, and they're not getting that because of this. And obviously, there's bigger fish to fry and everything, but it sucks. I was extremely curious with how their um, their kind of roster would do with the turnover and their aging players because I don't think their roster was set up for kind of a long run, like a long, like the kind of a dynasty, like I, I believe the Astros are. So I was very curious to see how the Nationals would do this year. And yeah, they, the fans don't get that. Uh, other curious, not so much fans of their team don't get that. And it's just, it's just baseball's not in a good state. I mean, the world's not in a good state right now without baseball. Oppo Taco, a fan's view of the show. So we're excited to welcome to Let's Get To one of the coolest followers or people I follow on Twitter. That's the word for it. Mr. Brian Wilson. He goes by 10 state or he goes by Stadiums 10 on Twitter. Brian, how's it going, man? Uh, it's going well. Thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely. So you're you're out in Oakland, right? How's it going? Uh, how, how are y'all doing out there? Doing well, thanks. Yeah, we uh, we've lived out here in the Bay Area for the last five years and uh have gradually become, I'm a, I'm a Tigers fan by nature, lived in Detroit for 40 years and came out here and we've, I've sort of adopted the A's as my home team out here. So we're about uh, 25 miles or so from the Coliseum. Well, I'd like to start by saying thank you for Justin Verlander. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> Man, That's that guy's, right. he quickly became like a big fan favorite here, but um, my wife, uh, she really likes his confident strut after a strikeout. Uh, she uh-huh. she's maybe too into it. Um, but so, tell me a little bit about like just your history with the game, how you got into baseball. Sure. Yeah, I've been a, a lifelong fan um, and uh, played. Uh, you know, growing up all through high school. Um, once I got to college, I started to drift away from it a little bit. And, uh, you know, I was a baseball card collector and I was, you know, obsessed, obsessed over the Tigers teams of the eighties and, uh, really was focused on, on, uh, on being as much a part of the game as I possibly could. It was like baseball was my, my number one sport that I was obsessed with and everything. I'm, I'm a huge sports fan, but everything else was way secondary. Um, once I got into college and then I started teaching after that, um, there's, there's kind of a 15 year, 20 year period in, in between there where I, I, I never, uh, didn't pay attention. I was always paying attention to the game, but, but did, uh, sort of, uh, it, it kind of got on the back burner as I, uh, got married and raised, you know, my kids and, and, and have just in the last four or five years really started reconnecting with the game and, um, you know, loving going to games and, and started the stadium project um, just as kind of a fun thing to do. And it's kind of grown into its own little monster by now. So it's been fun. Well, tell me a little bit about the stadium project then, because I kind of do the same thing, but with minor league parks, like I sort of mm-hmm. will stumble into an MLB park when I'm on the way to a minor league one. So tell me a little about it, a little bit about it. Yeah, I've been um, uh, at this point, I've seen 24 of the 30. Um, I had seen a few before I started this and, uh, a few years ago I was on a, um, I was on an airplane. I can't even remember where I was going. Um, but just kind of, uh, bored and started thinking about, um, sort of bucket list things or like, you know, what, what types of, uh, what types of things would I want to do, um, before I died? You know, what, what do I really want to like be able to tell my grandkids someday that I accomplished? And, 
Um, so one of those kind of goofy things that grew out of that was, uh, you know, I'd seen before lots of people who have seen lots of stadiums or, or, or done 30 over the course of a, you know, all 30 over the course of a summer, um, you know, been to a lot of them, but I, I started wondering how quickly I could possibly get to a point where I'd be able to see as many as I possibly could. Um, so I started this two years ago, 28, the summer of 2018 was the first time that I actually went out on a 10 stadiums in 10 days tour. Um, I am, uh, lucky in some ways because I, I teach high school. Um, my wife teaches elementary school, but in a different district. So our schedules don't quite match up and our, our kids go to school in the district where my wife teaches. So we oftentimes like at the beginning of the summer, for instance, um, I've got a couple weeks where they're still in school and I'm out of school and my wife is, is amazing uh, and has basically said, you know, you, we're, you don't have to sit around the house. You know, if you want to, if you want to do something, do something. And I suggested this idea of going off on a, on a baseball journey and um, you know, the rest is kind of history. So I've done a couple of them by now. Um, this spring uh, was supposed to be my third. Uh, our spring break week was, I think the week before last. And I had basically over the winter kind of planned everything out and, and had 10 that I was going to hit and tried to, my, my goal was to get to 28. I think I would have been, um, at the end of that, but that obviously has been postponed. So, um, at this point I've done two of the 10 and 10 trips and, and I blog along the way it's 10 stadiums, 10 days.com and just kind of meet people and talk to them and, and do some sort of reviews of the stadiums, but also just, um, it's turned in a chance into a chance for me to meet people in different ballparks and, and talk to them and, and give me a good excuse to kind of get out there and see what's what. I think that's the best part of it is because baseball has so much gap in the action. You really can talk to people and get an idea of what those, that culture is like. I was actually supposed to go to Oakland this year. Um, mm-hmm. I'm holding out hope that I think it was the end of June. I was supposed to be there. So Maybe there's a chance. What were some of the some of the highlights of some of the some of the, the parks you really like? Um, I, you know, the, uh, every place I go has a, at least one highlight. That's for sure. Even the ones I don't particularly like. And I always tell people, um, you know, the really the 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 worst possible experience you could have at a baseball game is pretty much better than the best possible experience doing much of anything else. Um, so so even when I don't particularly love a ballpark, it's still great. Like I still love it. Um, the, the ones that I am most attached to, I grew up on tiger stadium. Um, and so the, the older parks, um, it's, it's really hard for me to compare anything to Fenway or Wrigley just because, um, I was talking, I was kind of going back and forth with somebody on Twitter the other day, um, about, you know, which are your favorite places to go. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of homerism that comes up in that everyone's kind of like their home park is the one they love the most. Um, but I always say, you know, one of my criteria that I use is if, if right now there were games going on all over the country and I could magically teleport myself to one ballpark, where would I go? Uh, and it would be Wrigley or Fenway. And then a huge gap between those two and everything else in, as far as just, you know, the magic of seeing a game in an, in an amazing venue. Um, but there, there's, you know, other ones that I certainly love. Uh, Camden Yards is, is I think, my, my number three for sure, um, just because of the, the beauty of the setting and the passion of the fans and the team. I, I oftentimes think when the team is terrible and the fans are still 
into the experience of the game, that's when you know you have a great fan base. You know, it's it's super easy for teams, I think, that are, um, you know, doing it's it's really easy to be a, a, a big fan of a team that's really good. Uh, but when you see some of the teams, you know, Cincinnati has been kind of down on their look and the fans there are great. Pittsburgh has been kind of awful and the fans there are great. Um, so seeing some of those places where the fans are really passionate and the, even when the team isn't outstanding, I think is a really kind of a cool thing to see. Um, I'm a, I'm a, I'm partial. My homerism lies with the, the Coliseum, uh, which often is ranked probably 28 or 29 or 30 on most people's lists of their favorite stadiums to be. And I can't argue with the, the, the beauty of the structure itself, but going to a game at the Coliseum is an experience like no other. Um, and the fans there have a ridiculous level of passion. It's incredibly fun. It's, it's a, it's a, it's an amazing value, uh, that you get. And I think, you know, it, it, it does get kind of a bad rap from people. It's often, half full at best because it's such a, a gigantic yeah, it's place huge, to go. Though. Yeah. It's, it's huge. It's huge. And, uh, but it's a great, it's a great place to see a game. If you sit in the bleachers at a, an Oakland gaze, A's game at the Coliseum, you are guaranteed to have a great time. I'm, I'm, I'm like, you mentioned Baltimore was supposed to be there and now I'm just trying to do my best to not have emotional reactions. <laughs> um, no, yeah. it's funny that you say that because, you know, my wife's very first, my, her very first baseball experience ever. So I grew up in Houston. She grew up in San Antonio. So her first major league experience was Tigertown, was Detroit. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that's still, I think, partly because it was her first game with her dad and her brother, that that's always going to be her high uh, watermark for yeah. Now, did yeah. you ever make it to the Astrodome before it closed? I did not. No, I've been to, I went, uh, that summer of 2018, I was at, um, I was in Houston for a game, um, and, and really enjoyed the experience. I thought it was great. I met some great people who were there. I did not get a chance to go to the Astrodome. I had been, um, I went, this is probably 15 or 20 years ago. I was at a game at the Metrodome, um, and thought it was, it was just bizarre to watch baseball in a, you know, in a dome like that. Um, but never got a chance to see the Astrodome. Yeah. It's weird for me because I've been like everybody else, I'm sure watching old Astros games on TV and just that place that was so magical when I was 10 looks kind of like a dump now and it makes me yeah. sad. Um, yeah. So what was your Minute Maid Park experience like? Because part, I mean, like, I, look, I love Minute Maid. When I do my list of, of, of MLB parks, I always take Minute Maid out of it because of the, what you say, the Homerism thing. Yeah. Um, and I think the name is stupid. Um, but what, are, <laughs> what, what did you think of Minute Maid overall? Uh, there's a lot of them that like that, aren't there? Oh, really? Um, the, uh, I, I had a great time. So I flew in, I actually, it was, it was between seeing a Texas Rangers game. Um, that experience I didn't love, um, mostly because it was so difficult to get to the ballpark. Um, and, and it was, you know, 150 oh, degrees or whatever. They're finally putting a um, roof on their park. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. Yeah. So hello, I'd like you're to in go Texas. back. It's, it's, it was, um, I mean, I, I loved being in Arlington at the game. I, I think that was the cheapest, best ticket I got to any game. I usually try to do the cheapest ticket I can so I can wander around the stadium a little bit. Um, but I had flown in from, from, uh, from Dallas to Houston. So that's not what is a you know, 40 minute flight or whatever. Um, and then took the bus into Minute Maid Park, got as close as I could, uh, via the bus and then one walked in the rest of the way. 
um, I met this amazing family as I was walking into Minute Maid Park. And we were just kind of, we just happened to sort of be walking along at the same pace. And, um, you know, I saw the, the, the dad of the family had a uh, Felix Hernandez jersey on. They were not playing the Mariners either. He was just wearing this jersey because he loved Felix Hernandez. And uh, so we, you know, I, like I often do, I just struck up a conversation and we started talking. And I'm pretty sure that his daughter, who was five years old, um, was... Uh, thought that I was like a family friend or something because she came up to me and she started chatting with me nonstop. And uh, we had a great conversation about her little league team and about her dog and, you know, we're walking along and it was just one of those kind of magical, like, this is like the, the people were fantastic. Um, I got to the game and um, it's, it's big. Like I, when I was, um, I got a seat like way out in the, 400 level, I think it is. Sure. And, um, and you're pretty far away from the action. You know, it's, it was pretty remote. Um, but wandering around the stadium was cool. I met lots of really good people. Food was great. Had, had some of the best, probably the best nachos I had on the whole trip was, <laughs> was in Houston and, you know, had a great time. I'd love to get back. Well, when you get back, you let me know and we'll, uh, we'll, 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 we'll take care of you. Um, For sure. one of the things that, that I wanted to ask about was, um, your thought of just some random stadiums that I know that I've been to your thoughts. So, yeah. uh, Petco. Petco, I love, I think is actually pretty underrated. That it's is one favorite. of those places where, um, I, I think if they ever build a team and, and it kind of looks like they're trying to, and they got a lot of really good young players, um, if they ever build a, a team and get people to actually go to that ballpark, it's going to be just rocking. Um, because right now it feels a little bit about like a place that is just gorgeous. Like food's good. The the beer at Petco Park is the best beer of any park in the country if you're a beer person. Um, and the facility is just super clean and it doesn't feel like antiseptic. It, it's it's clean, but it's also got a little bit of emotion and feeling to it. It feels like a good place to be. It's just that nobody's there, um, and so that makes it that makes it a little harder. But as far as like the actual structure and the experience, it's it's pretty high on my list. Uh, what about Seattle? Seattle, um, that's another one that I think is a little underrated. Um, I was able to, as actually, I talked about Felix Hernandez. I was able to see uh, Felix Hernandez pitch when I was there. Um, and my wife's cousin lives in Seattle. So I had kind of a connection and had, had a great time at the game. Um, I was able to see the roof close. It had, had sort of sprinkling right before the game. And so the first inning, they started closing the roof and uh, had a chance to see that, which was kind of cool. Um, but I, I actually like, it's kind of got that feeling like Minute Maid Park does where it's sort of like, it's like kind of inside, but you also still kind of feel like you're outside. Um, and, uh, I sort of like that style of stadium. Uh, so I had a good time in Seattle. And last one, uh, have you been to Atlanta's new one yet? I have not. That was on my list for this year. Um, okay. It's really so, good. You're, you're going to dig it. Yeah. I've, I've heard good things. I actually, um, just finished reading, uh, the book ballpark, um, which, um, kind of talks through how the Atlanta stadium complex is, is possibly sort of the next new thing, you know, like Camden Yards sort of ushered in the the sort of wide open retro feel. And they're wondering now if it, if that stadium in Atlanta, because it's, they sort of built up from what I've heard, they've sort of built the town up right around it. If that's kind of the new thing, they're talking about a similar sort of idea in Oakland. 
um, if that project after ever gets off the ground, they're kind of talking about some other things to do here. So we'll see how that works. I, you know, I hope so. Cause it's the one thing where Houston could do that, I think with where they're situated, but it is cool. Like, uh, you know, St. Louis has the ballpark village that kind of yeah. extended yeah. party part of it. Um, so what about the new Oakland, new Oakland stadium plans? Like, are you hopeful or, you know, how, how what is the temperature there like about that? <sighs> You know, it, everyone was super hopeful. Um, and I think like a lot of things with, with the coronavirus, you know, sort of putting a pause on everything in life, um, you, you, you're not hearing what you were hearing before. I don't, I don't think that's reason for alarm necessarily. I just think everything's been sort of put on pause. Um, I don't have the same, I don't have the same history in Oakland that other people who I know pretty well who go to games have. Um, there's, there's a, a fair level of disillusionment with the long-term plan. Um, there's often been times, uh, oftentimes been talk of, of, of leaving for, uh, you know, well, San Jose, which wouldn't have been too far a jump, but getting out of Oakland, um, or just moving the team elsewhere. Um, and, and, uh, you know, they have sort of a habit of, of being able to cultivate really, really great young players. They've done that again, you know, the last couple of years they have, they're just stocked, um, but people, uh, you know, people who have been followers of the team for a long time know that they get stocked and then they start dumping them cause they just can't afford to pay any of them. Um, they're so, stocked, they're pesky, they're annoying. Yeah. They don't know when to go away. Every time I look at the standings, they're three games back. Sorry, I'm having right. post-traumatic stress for the last two years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's the ace. And, and that's uh, quite frankly, I mean, that's one of those things that, I love about the team, you know, is that they, they are that team that is just persistent. And, uh, you know, if you read Moneyball, it's, it's this, it's, that's the way that team is. They just, they get the absolute most out of what, out of the talent that they have. Um, as far as the, the, the ballpark, uh, I think this is the closest to realistic it's been in terms of shifting to a new location. So they have a uh, Jack London square, which is, which is about five miles North of where the Coliseum is now would be a waterfront property. They have the architectural drawings kind of put together. They've gone through the process of trying to get all the environmental, uh, licensing and, and, you know, passed through all the city council restrictions and everything else. They were hoping to break ground uh, and have the stadium open, I think for 2023 was sort of the target. Um, but it's, you know, like I said, like everything else, it's a little up in the air right now in terms of wondering what's what. Um, I'm also, like I mentioned, I'm a huge Coliseum fan and uh, going to a game at the Coliseum for me right now is relatively easy. Um, it's the BART stop is right there. You know, you walk across the bridge and you're in the Coliseum. It's almost always easy enough to get a ticket. You know, you've, you've seen it on TV. There's almost always room. Um, it's cheap. You know, you, you, you get, uh, right now the A's have this deal going where, uh, it's called an all, uh, all access package and you basically get half price on concessions and half price on drinks. And, oh, wow. uh, it's, it, you know, so you, you drink, you get $5 beers at the Coliseum and you can't buy a beer for $5 literally anywhere <laughs> else in the Bay area. Um, right so it's Houston area. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a great, it's a great place to see a game. And I know a lot of that will go away with, you know, with, with a new stadium and, um, you know, needing to, to, they'll fill it, you know, cause it'll part, partly it'll be a new stadium and partly it's going to be much smaller. Um, but it, it'll definitely be a different feeling from what's at the Coliseum. I'm not 
I'm not wishing it doesn't happen. I just, I know that people are going to miss the Coliseum in ways that most outsiders would be surprised to hear they're going to miss the Coliseum. Well, I'll say this as someone who actually was an ACE fan until the Astros moved over. Um, mm-hmm, and then they kind mm-hmm. of messed my whole universe up, but that's, this is not yeah. my therapy session. I'll talk about that later. Yeah. But, you know, my big fear would be smaller stadiums, new stadiums or expensive stadiums. Will you still have the drummers? Will you still have all that stuff that makes yeah. the, the game special there? Right. Right there. You know, Dave Cavill is the, is, is kind of running the show right now and he's pretty committed to listening to fans. He's surprising. Like he's super active on Twitter, very responsive to people's needs. You know, he's, he's a, he's a local guy. Um, and he understands the value of the team. He, he loves that aspect of it. You know, the, the crazy drummers and the cowbells and all the other, you know, the signs and the, and the guys waving the flags and all that craziness, which is awesome. I think they'll maintain that. I just, I think that, you know, when the, when the giants moved, um, you know, into what is now Oracle park, um, you know, and they also won three world series that didn't hurt either. Um, but there, there, you, you talk to some of the old time giants fans and it is a little bit of a different vibe at Oracle now than it was back in the day, you know, when the, when it was the diehards. Um, and, and now it's sort of the place to go and the place to be seen. And it's, it's beautiful. Like I love going to games at, at, at Oracle as well. Um, but it's definitely a different vibe than it has at the Coliseum. If I had to guess, I would sadly have to say probably not. Um, I, 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 I'm hopeful that there's some version of a season. Um, I, I just can't see getting, packing people into ballparks at, at any point in the near future. I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. Um, and you know, maybe things start to drastically change and all of a sudden we're in, we're, we're feeling differently than we're feeling right now that I know that could happen. Um, but it, it doesn't seem likely to me. Um, I, I'm intrigued by all of the, I, I'm not, a, I, I, it's weird. I love baseball and I love the tradition of baseball, but I, I'm not a baseball traditionalist or a baseball purist. Like I, I, I like pitchers hitting, like I'm cool with that, but I also like the DH and I, I you know, most people are like, you have to be one or the other. And I'm like, I kind of think it's cool that there's both. Um, and I, you know, so when I start talking about all these weird, like they're going to play the season in, in, uh, in Arizona, or they're going to play half, half the teams in Arizona, half the teams in Florida, or they're going to do seven inning games, or they're going to do, you know, seven inning doubleheaders or, or whatever the case may be. Um, and you hear people start to just come like complain about like, you know, they, they can't do that. That'll wreck the integrity. I'm just like, I would take anything right now. Like I, I don't, I, you know, if they're going to do seven inning games, it's not ideal, I don't think. Or if they're going to play the whole season in Arizona and people aren't going to go, I'm still going to watch it. Like I'm still going to be glued to my TV watching the games. Um, and so that's kind of where I am is I, I hope there's something that happens, but I'm, I'm not overly optimistic that there's going to be. Well, what a downer. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. It's, this, this season's already a downer. I think even if they do play it, it's going to be abbreviated in such a way that, you know, let's say they play a, a, a mini season and it, and it runs all in Arizona and you've got 40 man rosters and like whoever wins the world series, there's going to be weird asterisks, you know, attached to that anyway. 
Um, so it's all, it's already kind of weird, you know, and part of me is just like, maybe we just scrap the whole thing and we start over next year. But, um, again, I, 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 I miss it to the point I'm like you, I, I watch old games on YouTube all the time and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fiending for it, um, that I, you know, I'm still holding out hope that there's maybe something, but I, I don't anticipate myself making any sort of ballpark trip until 2021, I would guess. Go, go Astros, a focus on H-Town Hardball. And we're here on the Go, Go Astros. We're going to keep it weird. And and you know what? We're going to keep it body positive, Andy. We're going to talk about some of our more girthy Houston Astros. Well, you know, the interesting thing is, um, as I look through social media and I look around my own shambles of a life, um, <laughs> I noticed that... One one of the things that people are spending a lot of time doing is baking and eating and indulging in foods at home. They can't go out. There's obviously a social call to help out restaurants in your neighborhood by eating out a lot. And then you're also loading up the grocery store. Some would say hoarding. At least that was happening early on. And so there's a lot of food involved with the quarantine and the pandemic and the end of um, our civilization as we know it. So um, in honor of that, not stir crazy at all. I spent um, a little bit of time trying to put together a um, a, a all uh, largest team, a team that was grandiose in the most physical sense of the word, um, affectionately known as the Fastros. Um, and I'll give you a little bit of background. When I was in college in our kitchen in the apartment I shared with my roommate, we had um, a few posters up. We had a, a poster of Pete and Cavillia. We had a poster of Cecil Fielder. Um, and I want to say one other, but I can't remember who exactly it was. And they were fat guys. They were big, jolly guys that, you know, I think it was John Crook. Um, now that it comes to mind. But just large, large guys. Crook, of course, was famously known for saying, I'm not an athlete, ma'am. I'm a ball player. Um, these guys epitomize that. Now, when you and I talked earlier, we um, I had decided that I was going to try to put together a team. Surprisingly enough, there are not a lot of fat shortstops or second basemen, so that was quickly, quickly um, disregarded. So what I've got you tell is me Kyle a Tucker, bunch of pitchers. Not Kyle Tucker. Oh my God! Why am I? Why am I? Uh... You're telling me Tyler White didn't have any a didn't take any any ground balls at shortstop in his little tenure. Tyler White didn't even make my team, although he would be the second baseman if I had gone okay. there. So what I've got is a bunch of pitchers, as you would imagine, and a bunch of outfield slash first base slash DH types, and a couple of catchers. Um, so, you know, we can do this a few different ways. I like starting with the pitchers because when you get to the – we're not athletes, we're ball players. Pitchers aren't even ball players, And no apologies at all to your other contributors on this podcast. <laughs> pitchers are their own breed. You just ask fair, them. Fair tell you. enough. Um, so we've had a few. Um, and I don't want to lead with my best joke, but it's going to end up being in the first part of this. Uh 91 to 94, your starting pitcher, Pete Harnish. He had this really weird body where his face, his head was normal size. And as you got farther down his body to the ass, 
it just grew itself, like a pear. Uh, he would be a pear-shaped individual. Um, and the uh, what, the pullovers and the white pants did not accentuate any of that in a good in a good way for him. Um, but he was a guy who really solidified, uh, made an all-star team, solidified our rotation during that transition from the 80s Astros into the Killer Bees. Um, so he's a guy I remember fondly. Somebody who pitched with him uh, with the Astros from 89 to 93, Mark Portugal, who we've talked about a lot. And I've noticed as I'm going through these lists, I hate having repeats because um, I tend to talk about the same guys over and over. But the guys that made large impressions on me also happen to be large guys. And I would appreciate it if you did not freeze that clip and use it against me <laughs> later on. Um, I was going to say, you're, let's get two's official chubby chase. Right. But Mark Portugal is actually absolutely one of those guys who I think I've mentioned three times. And for having what amounted to a four-year career in Houston, who, and his biggest claim to fame was that he could always beat the Giants uh, when the Giants were good, uh, he gets a lot of mention. My third starting pitcher, and really the only starting, uh, only other starting pitcher that I have, is Brett Myers, who pitched for Houston um, after being thin in Philadelphia for the first part of his career um, from uh, 2010 to 2012, the lost years, um, Brett Myers pitched uh, both as a starter and out of the bullpen for Houston. And he was a large guy who accentuated it with a really skinny beard. Um, so his beard uh, went from, you know, the top of the bottom of his bottom lip or the top of his bottom lip in like kind of straight line down to his necklaces. Um, it was weird, but Brett Myers was kind of weird. Um, there's been a number of fat relief pitchers, as you would think. Aurelio Lopez comes to mind. Jeff Fulcino comes to mind. My comment next to Jeff Fulcino was unremarkable because as I looked up fat ball players, his picture is in there, and that was the caption. Unremarkable Jeff Fulcino. So there's that. He was also like 6'5", 285. Um, my favorite, though, and I'm going to give up my worst, my best joke first, uh, is Fred Gladding. Fred Gladding was a pitcher from the for the Astros – um, for 1968 to 1973, but he had a 13-year major league career with other teams. Uh, Fred Gladding, his nickname, <laughs> you'll love this, his nickname was Fat Freddie Flintstone. Because this was back in the era when you could call, you know, a deaf guy a dummy. And <laughs> I mean, it's, the baseball nicknames are horrible, and this was kind of the tail end of that period. Um, Fat Freddie Flintstone... <laughs> actually led the league in saves in 1969 with 29 saves. Um, so he wasn't just a fat guy, but that's got to be one of the best nicknames I've ever heard. When people know you far and wide, it's Brett Freddie Flintstone coming in to save the game. I, I, I just, I hope that he came in barefoot. I don't know what to tell you. That's <laughs> awesome. Well, it was the 60s, so most of them were on LSD anyway. Um, and then, of course, we have your favorite, Charlie Kerfeld, who was a large, large man who pitched in relief for Houston um, from 85 to 90. Uh, never pitched for another major league team and flamed out pretty quickly after his uh, successful 86 season. But he's been on our list, like I mentioned, Mark Portugal, for being fat, for being a survival guy, for having a mullet. Um, if only he had a mustache, he'd have all four categories. <laughs> he definitely would, would would win my vote for most likely definitely at some point in time got a hot dog mid game. 
Um, speaking of guys that, you know, made an impression, even though they only uh, were with Houston for a short time, Pete Inclevilla, I've mentioned him three or four times during our podcast this year. Um, he was an outfielder in Houston from 90 in 1992 and again in 1998. Uh, classic fat guy mentioned him. I had a post, a sports illustrated poster of him in my kitchen to remind me how to properly nutrition myself. Um, Another handful of outfielders, Daryl Ward, who played for the Astros from 98 to 02, the son of Gary Ward. Um, Gary Ward was a thin man. Daryl Ward looks like he was twice the man that Gary Ward was, maybe three times the man. And you get into some kind of fringe players. I know one of your favorites, Machete, uh, Martin Martin Maldonado, uh, who is the current and uh, current catcher for the Houston Astros, starting catcher, and uh, played in Houston for parts of 18 and 19 as well. Um, and then you've got luminaries like uh, Evan Gaddis, who we've mentioned before, Tony Eusebio, who we've mentioned before, uh, who is a large, large man. Um, the problem with the Astros and fat guys is we haven't had the fat productive guys um, outside of two exceptions. We haven't had the Bartolo, Bartolo Colones or the Dimitri Youngs or the Dante Bichettes or the CC Sabathias. And even the guys who you think of who played for the Astros who were fat, who were good, didn't really get fat. So they left. So like Lee May in the seventies um, and Rusty Staub a little bit before that got fat with the Mets and the Expos and the Reds and the Orioles. They didn't get fat while they were in Houston. Uh, which tells me that uh, fast food became more prevalent after they left. But we have some all-stars, and you could make an argument that at least one of these should have gotten more um, attention for the Hall of Fame. One of those is Carlos Lee. Carlos Lee was the famous free acquisition uh, that Drake McLean made, and I think the last big one that he made before he sold the team. Uh, played for the Astros uh, from 07 to 12, started out as an outfielder, turned into a first baseman, turned into a DH who played sometimes in the National League uh, and then was traded away. Also famously owned a ranch where he kept heads of cattle that he professed to have eaten. Um, so he had a large appetite for life. And, and then probably the most famous fat guy. Or the most famous fat guy who played for the Astros, who actually thinned down from his rookie year to the end of his career with Houston, uh, Lance Bergman. When your nickname... Coming up is Fat Elvis. <laughs> when your former Rice teammates call you Twinkie, um, and when you move from the outfield to first base as a natural progression, um, you might have an eating disorder. Um, now, the great thing about Lance Berkman is he is the only guy on this list who played a premium defensive position because he did play center field for a number of years. In With the hill. Um with the hill and navigated the hill, made a couple of catches on the hill. Um, Berkman's great for a story. He's another guy we've mentioned a number of times throughout these weird lists. Um, so he, he's very well-rounded and certainly early in his career, he was very well-rounded. Um, but that's, that's, that's the history of the fat guys in Houston. I would think with such a good tradition of Tex-Mex in the city of Houston, we would have more fat guys, to be honest. Well, I think, you know, the prevalence of um, restaurants and eating out has really been something over the last 30 years. Prior to that, the early 60s, I mean, you have to go back to a guy like Fred Gladding who came here fat. He didn't get fat in Houston. Um, Houston's famously been known as the fattest city in America uh, for a few years in the early 2000s. I think San Antonio finally passed us up. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was not a fast race, <laughs> but, you know, it's something we can certainly work towards. 
Um, I don't know how we're going to overcome the new modern athlete who wants to train all the time. Uh, baseball players used to be guys that, you know, worked at Sears over the winter and then, you know, worked out during spring training and got in shape around July 4th. <laughs> right. um, it, it's harder and harder to find your fat guys in baseball, but, you know, there's always going to be a few. Hope, hope um, springs. Yeah, I mean, Evan Gaddis was really our last last one that you saw every day. Martin Maldonado. Maybe there's going to be somebody else come up. Um, I was hoping we would keep, hold on to Seth Beer because that name just lends itself to being a fat guy. Yeah, you know, but maybe, alas, maybe we'll have a. He's going to be plying his trade. He's going to be plying his trade in Arizona for a while, I think. You know, maybe maybe Breg maybe Bregman will end up with some love handles. You know, he's in a new relationship. He's hanging at home. They're they're not playing right now. Maybe he'll come in a little. Those are called comfort. Those are called comfort handles when you're in a relationship. Sir. <laughs> Got it. All right. Before we get out of here, uh, just real quick, your thoughts on this whole three division, ten team divisions? Astros playing in a division with the Rangers, Oakland, San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Diego, and others. Oh, is that the latest one? That's the latest one. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's just as asinine as the Florida and Arizona one where we're in a division with the Cardinals and Mets, although at least we have some history with those teams. Um, I, it, it boggles my mind that Major League Baseball can't figure out what to do with a team in the central time zone if they're located in Harris County, because they certainly don't have a problem doing that for the Cubs, the Cardinals, the Royals, the Brewers, um, and you know, at times the Rangers, although the Rangers are kind of in the same boat. I don't know what about looking at that map makes you think that we're a West Coast team. Uh, but Major League Baseball loves to do that. And I get it's, you know, math at the end of the day, and you've got to have a certain amount of teams. But it would make a whole lot more sense to run a plan if you're going to bring baseball back. And I, I'm more encouraged ever that baseball in some form is going to come back just by, based on the number of plans that have been announced <laughs> over the last seven to 10 days. Um, that means somebody's hearing something and they're just running with it. I, I, baseball is going to come back. It's going to come back sometime this summer. Um, but it's just one of these things where it seems so simple and I, I certainly don't have all the information that they have to just use the home stadiums to quarantine a hotel for incoming teams, keep the players and even their families at those hotels, bus them directly from the airport to the stadium or airport to the hotel and be done with it. You can do your temperature checks. You can do your health screens. You can do everything else you need. You can isolate the teams and still make use of the stadiums that you have all over the country. And that way, when we can start introducing fans back, and I've seen a number of things uh, recently, at least at least three of them, talking about how Minute Maid Park, for instance, could space out 15,000 fans and be at a 50% capacity or you know, a little bit less than that with that number. Um, so that's something that's doable and something that's workable. And I think eventually, maybe later this summer, and maybe I'm being optimistic, you can have fans come. But if you're going to isolate the teams and make up stupid divisions and have them play at isolated parks with uh, designated stadiums for the playoffs and designated stadiums for uh, the World Series, I don't know what the point of having a season is going to be. More and but it also feels like Bob Nightingale and Jeff Basson and everybody else is coming up with these plans is literally making them up as they go. I will tell you that the more and more that I every new plan I see, the less interest. It's really is a law of diminishing returns with me. 
um, it starts to feel well, less like baseball, so I start to care less. Yeah, and I can I can absolutely understand that. The good news is because you're a fan of the bastard franchise of Major League Baseball, um, the only team who has played in the National League West, the National League Central, and the American League West, I'll mind you, and two different leagues besides you know the Brewers, who have only had to play in two divisions. Um, we're used to it. We're used to being shuffled around, and we have you know, rivalries with the Dodgers and the Giants and the Rangers and the A's. Um, so at least there's some interest from that standpoint, but why is it fair that Houston is going to play 78% of their games after starting after nine o'clock? Um, and how does that benefit growing baseball as a product across the country? And now on to close it out, the right-hander from Houston, Texas, James Christopher. So as we close it out, we're going to jump on the phone real quick with one of our very good friends of the show, Mr. Jess Canaster. Now, for those of you who have been following the show know that there was the little hint of minor league baseball contraction as far back as September. It sort of died down. And then a big story leaked last week that was immediately debunked. But here we are now waiting for final word. Jess, how's it going in Lancaster? Uh, it's a, a nice sunny day. You know, I, I haven't looked at the schedule. I'm not sure if we're uh, supposed to be getting ready for a baseball game, but our, our field is uh, nicely manicured. The sprinklers just turned off. And, uh, you know, besides the fact that the night won't finish with baseball, all is uh, about as good as it can be right now. So the Lancaster Jethawks, who, you know, we've been following your story since you left Midland, everything that you went through, you you landed in a place you were happy with, close to home relatively close to home, I should say. Um, and then to find out that the Jethawks are on the list. What is the mood around the Jet the Jethawks front office as y'all wait for all of this stuff to come through? Uh, I mean, obviously there's what we're all dealing with and it's not just our front office, but all 160 who uh, aren't getting ready for or playing baseball right now. So that's its own thing. But as it pertains to our front office, we've uh, we've had a mentality that 2020 is just this season and uh, uh, that there will be baseball in 2021, at least as it pertains to uh, anything contraction wise, obviously, if uh, COVID-19 wants to stick around and well, that's its own conversation. You shut your dirty little <laughs> mouth. <laughs> <laughs> well, out here in California, having listened to enough of the show uh, out here in California, it's just, you know, slightly different uh, mentality with, with that stuff, just because, you know, a state of 40 million people and uh, San Francisco and L.A. being two of the first places to really start shutting things down. We've had kind of a different mentality. The media has had kind of a different mentality of uh, how that is going to resolve itself. But as it pertains to uh, the contraction, we, we've been pretty upbeat. I mean, I, I was hired here. My first day was February 24th, uh, which what it's April now. So that was six years ago, I think. Um, at least that's how it, that's how it feels. Uh, so, and one of the first things that I was told is that we had the mentality that 2020 was just this season. It wasn't our last season and 2021 was going to happen. And we were making plans for 2021. Obviously, uh, there's so much in minor league baseball that you have to do in advance and several months in advance and tying money into things that are several months in advance. So when you sink money into something in minor league baseball, that's about, I think, as close as it comes to uh, a certainty. 
And so, because you're really making an investment in the future and uh, there has been no signs of any slowing down on investments for the future. And uh, it is a belief that there will be baseball in the Antelope Valley and in Lancaster in 2021 and beyond. So before we kind of jump into that, um, tell me a little bit about what the Jethawks have been doing to kind of help the community in regards to COVID-19. Um, some of the things that you guys, I know y'all have had some social media stuff. Some of the, what have y'all been trying to do to keep the, the community engaged? Well, so we, uh, we were supposed to open on April 9th, uh, along with the rest of minor league baseball. We had our, uh, there's a song that is used in this ballpark, uh, here in Lancaster and several others, uh, Emerson Lake and Palmer, Palmer Carnival number nine. Uh, we had that kind of headline, a uh, Spotify playlist, so people could listen to songs that they uh, songs and sound effects that they were familiar with uh, when coming to a Jet Hawks game. So uh, if they couldn't view the sights, they could at least hear the the sounds of what would come out of the speakers. Otherwise, uh, there we put coloring pages and that sort of stuff on our uh, social media platforms and. Uh, We've done a few uh, season ticket holder and uh, uh, partial season ticket holder sort of drive-by celebrations for birthdays. Um, I mean, none of that stuff obviously is unique to our area, but it's, I think, still just as impactful when it's uh, when it's your local team that's doing stuff. I know we had a, a caravan of people over the weekend that went to a few season ticket holder uh, houses and the reception was very uh, well received for all of that. Right. I mean, and that's not something that the Houston Astros, San Francisco Giants, or Los Angeles Dodgers would be doing. But that's something that certainly, have, yeah, certainly, certainly not to that scale. And I think uh, you know, I know enough people who are pleased at themselves when they get just a, a simple uh, social media interaction with a professional organization and, and that suffices as any sort of uh, uh, communication. But I think it's a different level when Kaboom, the giant oversized Jethawk mascot comes in, uh, comes to your house in a, uh, in the flatbed of a, a flatbed of a truck that, that, that hits a little different. So one of the things that we've talked about on this show, I know that you've listened about how Manfred is essentially using this, worldwide pandemic as a way to get away with things under the cover of darkness, like a thief in the night. Um, he's essentially, I mean this with no sense of hyperbole, trying to rob communities of their baseball team. Um, what are some of the things that you feel like we can do to keep the pressure on him? Understanding like you and I both understand that this is a relatively in the world of COVID-19 where people are dying, baseball should not be front and center. But I think you and I are both smart enough to know that when this is over, if our baseball teams are stolen, that will be a bigger deal. And what can we do, do you think, to stop that or help slow that down at least? Well, I mean, we're in the midst of a pandemic and we've had several uh, things try to go through Congress. And uh, even something like this, uh, there has been plenty of difficulty and, and a real lack of bipartisan uh, negotiation as it pertains to financial stuff um, with with COVID-19 relief. That hasn't been an issue with baseball. One of the first things that was announced was the MILB task force of more than something like 100, 100 120 uh, legislators from both sides of the aisle. So baseball has brought uh, both 
uh, sides of the government together, both, both, both sides of uh, Congress together. And I think if, uh, if that can be a unifier, then that is something that people can kind of uh, lock on to. Uh, in, in Lancaster, we are blessed with having uh, our representative be somebody who is a little bit higher up in the government, Kevin McCarthy, who is the uh, House Minority Leader. So he is, he's fourth in line for the presidency. Um, and to have an advocate like that, at least for us, uh, that helps us out, but reach out to your local Congress people, write them, flood their emails, uh, let them know what baseball means to your community, or if it's the community of somebody else, uh, who might be losing their team. Cause there are still 118 that aren't on that list, but hearing from any of those, uh, people to their local reps, uh, I think can go just as far, uh, because I don't think this is something that a lot of legislators are going to let go uh, lightly because of what sort of effects uh, financially and uh, economically these minor league teams can can add to their cities. I mean, it's almost a modern day uh, shutting of the local mill or factory. That's a great point, Jess. Uh, thanks so much for jumping on and talking about it. We're going to keep the pressure on them. Uh, we're going to use all the hashtags we need to, but thanks again for being a representative of that issue. That does wrap us up for this week. So remember, everybody, stay inside, stay focused, stay, do your best to stay sane. We are going to keep bringing fun baseball content to you. So until next time, let's get to it.